Excellence Expected, the inspirational business advice podcast. Hey, 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 welcome to another episode of Excellence Expected with me, Mark Asquith. Now, the topic of business growth keeps cropping up on the podcast. It's something that I think just a lot of people are generally thinking about. We live in this world of really, really fast, fast growing businesses, companies that we see in the press that achieve billion dollar status seemingly overnight. And we perhaps don't quite see what goes on underneath the surface of the water to make those businesses what they are. And that's what we're going to challenge today. If your business is not growing quickly enough for you, or if you are wondering, what can I do? Why am I not having the success that I'm seeing elsewhere? This episode is for you. And with me today is someone that has a lot, a lot of experience in this field, particularly from the study of large sets of data. So we're going to look at trends. We're going to look at what's happening in different sectors, in different industries, and really try and take apart how you can tap into some of this growth potential. So it gives me great, great pleasure to welcome to the show, Mr. Michael Baum, the founder and the CEO of founder.org. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's a real pleasure. And we were just talking in the pre-interview chatter about this kind of fantastic, fantastic technological world that we live in. And it's something that you know, we're, we're both equally amazed by. And, you know, the businesses that are out there now, we're seeing people like Uber, WhatsApp, Instagram achieve this billion dollar status very, very quickly. Is that something that we can expect to see more of? Oh, I think definitely. Um, I mean, in the tech industry in particular, the, the opportunities for technology, both hardware and software, to become part of um, many industries that that were before just analog and are now being digitized is represents an incredible opportunity for entrepreneurs. I love that. I'm really looking forward to getting into that. And just before we dive a little deeper on that subject, I think we just wet the appetite of the listeners a little bit there. I'd love to just figure out actually, Michael, what is it that you do? You're over in the States. What do you do? How do you help people? And what is your business, sir? Well, so I've been, uh, you know, one of these people who could never work for somebody else. So we call ourselves entrepreneurs and I've been in Silicon Valley starting companies for 25 years. I've done uh, six startups from scratch um, and been very fortunate that uh, a couple of them done extremely well. Um, the last one was a, what we call a unicorn, reached a billion dollar status pretty quickly. And um, now I'm working with uh, young innovators uh, right out of university that have ideas to, um, to build companies that are both going to have a positive impact on the world and um, be able to grow pretty quickly and, and need the input and expertise of people like me to help them along. And it's a, it's a really blossoming kind of, well, do you know, I say that, I say it's blossoming. I guess it's been around for a long time. Here in the UK, we're starting to see our country take this real entrepreneurial grip and people saying it's all right to be this entrepreneur and it's all right to disrupt certain markets. I guess, obviously, over in the States, Silicon Valley has been seemingly around for such a long time. And I think certainly in the UK, we're starting to feel that a little bit more. How's that landscape changed for you over the last 10 years? Well, you know, it's interesting that a lot of people around the world try to compare their regions to Silicon Valley and say, well, you know, we, we want to build a, a Silicon Valley here, be a Silicon Valley. And 
Silicon Valley is very different from you know a lot of the areas of the world where you see entrepreneurship taking hold now. Uh, I think in the Valley, it's always been driven by the possibilities of of technology and people's passions to you know kind of push that envelope. Um, I think a lot of the surge in entrepreneurship around the world, in particular in in Europe over the last decade has been more um, necessity as the mother of invention where, you know, you're, you're talking about 30, 40, 50% youth unemployment rates. Um, people are going to try something to make a life for themselves. And so I think a lot of the, especially young people who can't find employment in larger companies, it's just not there, are thinking to themselves, well, you know, I'm, I'm smart. I've got skills. Um, I could do something on my own. People are doing it, you know, in other parts of the world. Maybe I should try that too. So I think there's a little bit different angle in which people come into it, you know, in Silicon Valley versus other parts of the world. Um, but, but certainly it's changing the landscape of, of economics and the business world as we know it all over the planet. I think it's, it's a very, very inspiring time. It's a very interesting time to see people being so disruptive and people taking traditional models or taking traditional industries and actually pushing forward and solving for problems for people. And I'm particularly interested personally in the things that aren't necessarily thought of as technological industries where technology is being married with those industries to create something fresh, something new, something disruptive. And one of the things that I just want to explore a little bit further is I guess the anatomy of I wouldn't say a billion dollar business, but certainly one of these kinds of businesses that has got the potential. What what are some of the characteristics of those businesses? Why do they succeed? Well, I'll tell you, I think this, the, the, the couple of differences that we see across the board, uh, I mean, we have a whole system for analyzing these companies because we get thousands of submissions from, from uh, university graduates every year to enter our program. But the, the key things that we really focus on are the idea uh, the team, and the accessibility of the market that they're going after. Those are kind of the key three things that we look at. Um, as, as far as the idea, the, the thing that for me really separates kind of the, the, the small business just, just bumps along and never really finds significant traction and, and grows to be a bigger company, and the ones that do, as far as the idea dimension, it, it really goes back to the beginning of are you focused on something for a customer set that's really going to alter their future in a significant way? Or are you just focused on something that's, that's an incrementally, you know, kind of better way of doing something? And we definitely see the companies that take off in a big way, uh, whether they're a, a consumer company, you know, in a sharing economy like an Uber, say, for example, or whether it's a, a company in an enterprise segment like my last company, Splunk, that was in the big data space. These kinds of companies that look to the future, they look out five or 10 years and they say, how can we really alter the future for our customers, making their lives so much better that they'd be willing to take a chance on us, even though we're a young company? And that's the big difference on the idea dimension. Um, you know, as far as team goes, um, looking for, for teams of people who, um, who have diversity on the team, that come at it from a number of different skill sets and backgrounds and, and thinking styles is, is pretty critical. And then on the market accessibility, um, you know, a lot of young companies are just focused on markets that are too small. And if you want to create a sizable company, you, you have to focus on a sizable market. I just want to pick up on that, the idea of the disruption as well, because that's something that we see a lot of in the press. And 
Um, it's something that as a traditional kind of business person, someone that has, has run, you know, the bricks and mortar style business, people seeing this word disruption, I'm not quite sure that they're kind of fully grasping what that means for business. What does that mean in this space? So if you're coming into in, into an industry and you're creating something that disrupts that, like the Ubers of the world, what exactly does that mean? And how do how does someone actually go about coming up with something like that? Is it a solution to a problem? Is it spotting something? Is it is it opportunities? I, you know, I just want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that side of things. Well, it, it definitely requires that you have an understanding of what's going on in a particular domain. Now, this is where the magic comes in, is... You can go out and talk to 50 customers on the street about getting from one place to the other. Um, and they, they will very likely, in fact, maybe 49 out of 50 will tell you what the problem is. Oh, taxis are hard to get. They're really dirty. Um, we don't trust the driver. It seems unsafe, you know, whatever it is. But I would tell you that probably 50 of those 50 customers you talk to will not come up with the solution to the problem. So we find that customers are really great about articulating their problems, but it's the innovator's job, the entrepreneur's job to come up with the solution to the problem. Customers are generally not very good at coming up with the solution. I find that really a really well-articulated point, actually, because I think, I think you're right. You're spotting the opportunity but, and, and putting together certain elements that perhaps aren't very, very obvious. So in the case of Uber, you know, taking the traditional taxi model, turning it on its head and putting it on a phone. I know it sounds really, really simple because it's been done and it's been done fantastically, but to actually have the guts to take on that kind of industry, that's not a small undertaking, is it? No, no, it's not. And the, uh, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs that, that I see have, have kind of three traits. Um, you know, one is they identify a problem like this, that they're super passionate about changing. Um, they have a vision for how they want to change it, um, or you know, vision's kind of the politically correct way of saying it. I say they're a bit delusional, um, <laughs> and you know, they have to be really bold and audacious about selling that vision. and And those three traits seem to uh, come in over and over again in the entrepreneurs that that build these sizable companies. I was I was listening to a, a show a while ago about this kind of thing. Um, and the thing that seems to crop up more and more and more is this sense of inevitability. The idea that if you have this vision, <laughs> and I absolutely completely get where you're coming from with the word delusional, because entrepreneurs that have got this kind of desire, it's not an option to fail. It's not an option to not achieve that goal, no matter how big that goal is. And when you know we're using Uber as the example, that is a huge, huge goal. And just from your perspective, when you see these things land on your desk, when you see these emails land, how do you actually go about assessing these and appraising these when these dreams are so big? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, in particular, we've come up with a, uh, an eight-point system on eight different dimensions where we measure every submission on a scale of one to ten on each one of the dimensions. And it's a, it's a reasonably scientific process that we go through. Um, and we have it down now to the point where we can get in a presentation and assess it within five to six minutes uh, on these eight dimensions. Um, so we've created kind of a, a system, if you will, for doing this. But again, it, it, it does really come back to how well are they articulating their idea, meaning the way they're going to alter the future for a customer. Do they really understand how it's significantly different than today? 
Um, and is there a group of people there that you think have enough courage to go do this? Because the, the reason I use the word delusional is, you know, my last company at Splunk, I talked to 24 venture capitalists before I got somebody to give me a proposal to fund the company. And this was my fifth company. And I'd already made money for people in Silicon Valley, significant money. Um, you know, and the guys from Uber were, were raising money in Silicon Valley. 90% of the people they talked to thought they were crazy. So if you're going to take that 24th meeting after 23 rejections, you have to be a little bit delusional, right, to just keep going. But back to your point, I think when you're so passionate about something and you have a vision for the way it could be, that's what drives you every day. And you're just going to keep doing it until, until it gets done. That's a really interesting point. You know, you're just going to keep doing it until it gets done. I think that's what separates a lot of people out, especially the super successful people. You know, they just have that willingness to do the dirty work and just keep, frankly, just keep doing that dirty work to actually get it done. You know, really getting your hands dirty on that. And I just want to kind of move into the idea that if the dreams are so big, so if something lands on the desk of someone like yourself and, you, okay, so you can see that the dreams are that big, but perhaps the model's not quite right. Perhaps, you know, the, the, the way that people are going about it or the understanding of the problem's not quite right or even the understanding of their version of the solution. How does one go about shaping that into a business? You know, you, you're going to have founders there. You're going to have co-founders put together mm. with funders and people like yourselves. Is there, is there much butting of heads? Is it all pulling in the same direction for the right reasons? How does that tend to play out? But I mean, it's a fantastic question. You should be out here on the West Coast investing money. You'd be good at this. <laughs> Just better get saving. <laughs> so, uh, you know, really, you have to focus on do you have people that are coachable and that can work together in a team? Because if you don't, you move on. If you do, that's when it's worth digging in and spending time with them. And in fact, the the very first component of our program that we do uh, with these founding teams is we do something uh, called a thinking styles uh, assessment where every one of the teammate members takes this uh, 75 question uh, assessment and it maps them on a, uh, a four quadrant model of the brain and shows them how they process information how they make decisions, and how they communicate. What is their style? And we show these maps to everybody on the team, and then we take the maps and we overlay them and show them what they look like as a team. And it gives them the language to discuss difficult team issues together. And it makes the language independent of any one team member and any one team member's thinking styles. So we spend quite a bit of time on that up front because we really feel like it's all about team, team, team. And is the old, I don't want to say cliche because that's really unfair, but over in the UK, you sort of see on the uh, on the investment TV shows, which I, I'm really not a fan of at all. I really don't like the way that they pitch themselves, but... The things that do come out of those shows are things like it's not always about the product, it's not about the service or the company, it's about the team. Does that hold true in, you know, quote unquote, real life, if you like? You know, is it genuinely about the people? If the idea is not solid, but you see something in the people, is there as much propensity to invest or to, to nurture or to coach? You know, I, I think at the levels that we're talking, which is this kind of unicorn billion dollar company level, the, um, 
the reality is that you have to get them both right. That it's, you know, it's not really an option to have an inferior product and a superior team or vice versa. You really have to get both right. Um, the, the difference with a good team that functions well as a team together is they're inevitably going to have problems creating the product. Um, they'll, they'll likely pick the, the wrong market entry strategy initially. But if it's a team that's smart and they're functioning well together, they will figure it out. I think that's really, really powerful. The ability to talk, frankly, I like what you mentioned in the, in the previous statement about being able to take the person out of the conversation, if you like, and have this frank and honest, objective chat about things. That surely, especially when we're talking about accelerated growth to a billion dollar level, surely that's got to be such a vital component, if not the most important thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll give you a quick example with my team here at founder.org. Um, I have a couple of people in my management team who um, they're, they're very heavy in what we call the red relational quadrant of the brain. And when they arrive at our Monday morning meeting at nine o'clock, they need, they need 10 minutes just to chit chat about their weekend and, you know, spend time dialoguing with each other. And I have almost zero relational component to my thinking style. And so I show up at nine o'clock and I want to get right down to business and the chit chat drives me crazy. (laughs) I think I'm like you. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so what we've designed is I show up at nine, 10 and they've got all their chit chat out of the way and we get down to business and everyone's happy. I I like that. It's such, such a small, small thing, but it's such a, well, I'd never think of it. It's, it's such a simple, I hate the word hack, but it is a little hack that you can sort of undertake. And I love things like that that make things more efficient and more effective. And what I'm really interested in as, as a business person generally is the idea of making things easier for people, you know, helping people work together when they are different styles of personality. So I think that's really powerful for people. And when you know, I guess when, in a, sorry, go on. I was going to say, when we talk about, you know, really high growth businesses, the, the problem is generally exactly what you're saying. It's efficiency and throughput. How much can you get done in a day? And, and in these intellectual capital businesses where you're building technology-type products, um, there's always a lot more opportunity than there is time to get things done. Um, so these businesses, you know, when they die, they typically die of, of indigestion, not of starvation. So figuring out how to make the, the whole thing be more efficient and be higher throughput um, is really what it's all about. And I imagine it's a bit like a pressure cooker as well, because you've, if you've got all of these founders or the, you know, the very small team invariably, you know, people see this billion dollar valuation and assume it's all foosball tables and ping pong. You know, it's not quite like that. It's very high pressure, I would imagine. And is, it, is that in terms of your role, is that something that's really difficult to manage or does it naturally fall, you know, does it naturally fall into place where you've got all this pressure cooking up? How does that tend to play out? I think it, it naturally falls into place when you have the right team dynamics. Um, but when you don't have the right team dynamics, uh, it, it usually explodes in your face pretty quickly. And every year we take in up to 50 teams into our program. And in the first three months, there'll be two or three teams that, that blow up. Because they just, you know, the team members aren't working well together. Um, they had different visions about where to go in the future and they can't reconcile it. And sometimes that's just inevitable. 
I'd just like to pull on that thread a little bit more, actually, and just just talk about you. You mentioned the implosion there, and, and people generally coming under so much stress and so much pressure, or you know, different in personalities, or whatever leads to that implosion. And I think certainly from from the press perspective, you see these billion dollar companies, you see these innovative, disruptive startups out there really doing fantastic things, and it it does all seem really sexy, you know, if you're looking at it from the outside in it can really seem rather sexy and people assume that it's not that high pressure. It's not, theoretically, it's not that busy. When it's absolute rubbish, it of course is. I just want to pick up on that reality side of things a little bit more. You know, what does a billion dollar company look like? How long have they spent generally getting to become a billion dollar company? What do their days look like? What's the family life look like? What's the reality of that? The, the reality in terms of the numbers is uh, it takes somewhere between seven and nine years in Silicon Valley to, to reach that type of evaluation. Um, so, you know, the founders have put in almost a decade by the time they get there. That was certainly the case at, at Splunk. The three of us spent nine years on the company until the day we went public and traded at a three and a half billion dollar valuation. Um, you know, in terms of, of family life, you know, people... People, when I got to Silicon Valley 25 years ago, used to talk about work-life balance. And when you're in one of these high-growth startups, there's no such thing. I mean, if, if you don't find a way to have what I call work-life integration, then you won't have any life outside of work because you're always working. I firmly believe that. I, I completely agree that the work-life myth is a, just, sorry, the work-life balance is a complete myth. Um, gave the punchline away then, didn't I? I think it's total, total, you know, a lack of reality, I guess, for a lot of people. Because if you're so driven as a business person or as a founder of a startup, you're not going to stop. If something happens at 11 p.m. on a night that's an opportunity or needs your attention, you just, you aren't going to not do it, are you? And I think you're absolutely right. The integration, that's a fantastic way to articulate it. The integration of work and life, I think, is a really good representation of that. And it, how does that realistically then play out when you get four or five years in, you know, the pressures of, of owning a startup and doing this kind of what could be a decade, how does it play out? What's that journey like? Do you tend to find yourself five years in thinking, wow, why has it not happened yet? You know, but what's that feel like? It's, I mean, it's definitely difficult. There's a lot of ups and downs. Um, I think if you have good people on your team with you, uh, some people will be up while other people are down and, and it tends to work itself out. Um, a lot of it changes also when you take money from investors. When, when you're operating on your own capital or with very little capital, um, there's not nearly as much a, a sense, I think, of um, obligation to people on the outside world. But when, when you take on, you know, I'm not talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars from you know, some, some uncles or aunts, you know, the millions of dollars that you take from, from professional investors, I think that's when the pressure really ratchets up. And when you feel like, okay, we, you know, we need to turn this into something. We need to grow faster. Yeah, I I get that. And it's the, you know, that pressure must be really turned on when you've got someone else that you're accountable to. And it's not just accountability that's arbitrary is accountability against shares against stocks against you know real real investment and i guess that's well, and, and and customers <laughs> you know at, <laughs> at 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 splunk our very first customer um we had to give them their money back because the software kept crashing wow and that's you know 
that's a real gut check where you look around at the rest of the team and your co-founders and you say, okay, you know, what's the route forward from here? And today that customer is one of our largest customers, but we gave them their first $25,000 check back because they had so many problems with an early version of the software. Well, that just buys the advocacy though. I love that transparency and the honesty and just holding the hands up and say, listen guys, you know, frankly, yeah, we made a mess of this. Here's your money back, but here's what we're going to do. And you've turned that customer around and, you know, as you said, they've become one of the best customers. I think that is, that's a real sign of, of this kind of industry. And not only that, but the sign of the times that we live in where you can have a really open dialogue with customers. And I find it really interesting to see how things develop thanks to really open customer feedback and sometimes shouting and really shouting from customers uh, to, to different companies about some of the features or a lack thereof. And how does that, when you're actually looking at shipping a product, so if you're in a tech startup or if you're in a, in a startup that's putting a service out there for people, where do you draw the line? How do you figure out who to listen to and who not to? Mm, great question. Um, you know, you will find when, if you're, you're accurately tracking on this idea we talked about before of a, a powerful alternate future for your customer where you're really making a difference in their lives, then the thing that that customer gets attracted to from the beginning is your vision for that about how you're different than the status quo. And we see a lot of young companies find initial traction with that, but then they become enamored with their, you know, their initial first couple of customers telling them, well, we really need the product to integrate into this and to work with the system we have over here and this other thing. And the startups end up spending more time catering to these status quo needs of their initial couple of customers versus continuing to push the envelope on the things that made them different in the first place. And that's a really, that's a really dangerous place to be in because you have limited resources. Um, and if they're not focused on the things that make you different, you won't be different after a while. That is really interesting. I really like the idea of that because I think no matter what kind of business you're in, you're always going to get people that are much more communicative and are going to tell you what they like and what they dislike and it's the people that don't say anything like you said earlier the customer doesn't always know the solution to the problem so why would they speak up unless you actually ask them <laughs> and I think, yeah i think that's fantastic with the founder of ginkgo on uh, really early on in the show actually, and he said a very similar thing about when he rolled out of his beta you know there were people shouting and shouting and shouting and shouting and shouting he didn't know where to focus and you know, what features to put in there. And ultimately you just had to say, well, look, what did I set out to achieve? And if it doesn't fulfill that, then it's not going in the next release. Mm -hmm. And I found that really interesting. So here's a startup idea for your audience. Um, we, we did this at Splunk, but I could easily see somebody building a company on just this idea. Um, we took our product roadmap for 24 months, always a rolling 24 months out into the future. And we put it up on our website. And so any one of our users or customers could log into our website and give their feedback on our product roadmap. And they could easily kind of like a Facebook thing, they could thumbs up or thumbs down um, different features that we had planned out into the future, 24 months out. And we would take all of that input um, every month and we would triage it, look at it and compare it to where we wanted to go. And then we would update the roadmap and publish a new roadmap. 
And it, it really gave our customers a chance to feel like they were part of the conversation, but also let them know that there were a lot of other customers and ourselves as part of that conversation. So they weren't necessarily going to get exactly what they wanted. That's a fantastic way of doing it. I, I seem to remember someone like Trello doing that as well. They've got their own, Trello have got their own Trello board, I think for their product roadmap, which I think is amazing. What I like about that is the particular point that I picked up on there is it lets the customer know, the singular customer know that there are other people out there with a voice and it's not just, right. well, I, I want this. Mm, sorry. Yeah, I, I really <laughs> like that idea. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of times it gives customers other ideas of things they haven't thought of. So we would have a lot of customers that wanted to integrate Splunk into legacy uh, systems. And when we showed them the ones that we were actually going to do versus the long list of things that, that they might have talked about, it would often spark an idea in their mind to say, oh, okay, well, we could integrate it this way versus the way I was thinking about, and that would actually be better for us in the long run. It's the old getting around a table and having a coffee on a grander scale, which I think works perfectly. I think that's fantastic. I thought it was getting at the pub and having a beer there where you were. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to be uh, I'm trying to be professional on the audio, but you're right. I'd be double it'd be double whiskey chases and a couple of beers. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Actually, that's a fantastic place to put a pin in it and actually move to the actionable tips section. I'd love to pick up on your three actionable takeaways for people that actually want to. I love the phrase, create a new future for their customers. So what three things can the people listening actually do today? Well, okay. So the first one is, is go back to thinking about who is your customer and what are their expectations for the future today? And can you create new um, expectations that they haven't thought of before, but that would be so exciting they'd be willing to take a chance on a, on a young company. That's, that's what we call this alternate future. Um, you know, and having the desire to change the status quo of the space that you're in in a significant way is really the first, the first tip that I'd have for people. That phrase is really, really resonating with me, that, the idea of creating a new future, an alternate future. I think that's something that so many people could just use as a really base barometer. You know, am I doing, you know, we talked about the decisions for features or for, you know, feedback. Surely if we just use that as the, as the linchpin, the barometer, does it fit this goal? Yes or no. That's your, your instant, instant barometer. I really, really like that. That's fantastic. And the, you know, the second piece of advice I'd have is, um, look, you know, look at the way you're going about this. And if it, uh, if it doesn't seem like it's a bit delusional if you don't have a number of people around you saying, no, that won't work. Um, I don't think that's possible. And you're probably not pushing the envelope hard enough because the, the, the naysayers to the supporters will be about 10 to one. Wow. I love the, um, the idea of being deluded. I, I just I keep saying this. I'm sort of enamored to this, this episode. I'm really loving what, what we're talking about here. The idea of being delusion. I think it's because, um, <laughs> I think it's because you kind of get told you're delusional anytime you try and achieve something that people around you don't necessarily understand or that they've perhaps not achieved or never thought of. So I love the idea of the guys at whatever, whether it's Uber or you guys at Splunk when you first started out, just saying, do you know what? We are going to do this. And I can just imagine the faces of the people in the pub around you saying, right, okay. And then 10 years later, here we are and off we go. And I, I just, I think you need that confidence in your own ability. And I think if that's painted as delusional, so be it. I think we all need to be a bit crazy. 
Well, so that leads to the third, you know, suggestion that I have is um, you have to be able to sell this desire to change the status quo, this vision that you have, this alternate future. And, you know, a lot of the, the truth be told, a lot of um, innovator entrepreneurs are, are not necessarily great at being audacious and bold and, and, and selling. I mean, me, myself, I'm an engineer by training and I wasn't always very good at standing up in front of an audience and, and selling something. Um, it takes practice and, at, at uh, Splunk, you know, I said to myself, okay, this is a fifth, the fifth company I started. I'm going to be a different kind of founder at this company. I'm going to be an externally oriented founder who spends most of their time with customers and really learn how to do that. And so you, you, you can learn how to sell. You can learn how to, how to be audacious, uh, but it takes practice and it takes um, a, a concerted effort to say this is something I'm going to do. I think just to build on that as well, I think if you're in a startup that you founded and you, you started it for a reason, you know, you saw a problem or you saw a passion that happened to be, um, you could commercialize it, you know, significantly. I think one of the biggest challenges that most people have is where to start with this selling, you know, how to become audacious, how do you do that? And I think if you can just start with that passion, because you know, we, we've all spoken again, back to the pub scenario, we've all spoken to friends about something that we really, really love and suddenly 35, 40 minutes has passed and, you know, we're still talking. We're passionate about it. We love it. And suddenly they're on board. And I think for those guys out there listening that aren't necessarily or don't necessarily think of themselves as sales type people or audacious people, you've only got to just look at what you love and you can talk about that all day long. So I, I love the idea of stepping outside the comfort zone and making that concerted effort. And for me, it's about building on the base that, that you already have. And I think it sounds a little cliched, a little cheesy, but I think just picking up on anything that you already love is just going to be so much easier to sell, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And to bring this back to our, our pre-interview conversation about genomics, um, I, I'm convinced someday we'll find the DNA sequence for salespeople. <laughs> I think people who are natural-born salespeople are definitely wired differently than those of us who are kind of natural-born creative types. Um, but to your point, if you are a creative type, and you can tap into your passion about what you're doing, you're going to have a big step up on becoming a pretty good salesperson. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Absolutely. And from someone that tried cold calling as a youth, I can attest to the fact that the sales gene is not in me. <laughs> <laughs> You've never heard so many hang-ups in all of your life, so good Lord. <laughs> fantastic. Well, listen, Michael, that has been such a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for doing that. And just, just before we wrap it up, where can the people connect with you online? Uh, so you can uh, connect with us at uh, founder.org uh, is, our, is our website. And uh, you can connect with us on, on Facebook at, at slash founder org and, and Twitter at founder org. Super stuff. Michael, thank you so much, sir. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Thank you guys as ever once again for listening and uh, everything that myself and Michael have spoken about will be available at excellence-expected.com and we're just expanding the free library of resources over there as well. So head on over once again, excellenceexpected.com. Check it out. See if there's anything that you like there. If you're an entrepreneur, someone in small business, or you're just struggling for motivation, check it out. There will be something there for you. And until next time, don't forget, the more you expect from yourself, the more you will excel. Bye-bye.